0: Let us pray. Gracious God, speak a word to us this morning and enable us with your grace to receive that word and so be transformed by it. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. Several years ago, a group of sociologists uh, led by Dr. Christian Smith um, from Notre Dame led a couple of year, did a couple of years of research on the spiritual and religious lives of uh, teenagers and young adults. And that, the, the fruit of that work um, was in, published actually in three different books. And um, in one of those books called Soul Searching, which is about the teenage uh, demographic, Christian Smith, uh, the author, tells of an interview with a 16-year-old girl named Joy. When asked about the meaning of faith, Joy responded that she thinks that faith is all about the individual. And I quote Joy. People believe what they want to believe, and if they get something out of it, then that's what they should believe. You can believe whatever you want to believe. Dr. Smith notes, Joy thinks all religions are true in the sense that there are people who sincerely believe in them. Joy believes that the truth of any particular faith or religious system is simply a matter of the individual deciding what works for them or what suits them and makes them happy. Joy, however, is not unique in her view of religious belief. In fact, contemporary research reveals that this kind of belief about religious faith is prevalent in Western culture today, especially among younger people. Religious belief is seen as a kind of smorgasbord buffet in which you take what you want from it and I take my favorite dish and what works for me and makes me happy and we'll all just call our own individual truth our individual, individual truth. What works for me works for me and what works for you works for you. When we come to a passage like the one we heard in Colossians today from St. Paul, we realize how important it is to know what Scripture says about who the living God is. We realize how important it is to have these sort of doctrinal systematic statements that Paul makes when we think about how strong the ideologies in our culture are about faith and spirituality. There's a branch of, a sub branch of theology that uh, scholars call Christology. Or you, you, you can think of it as Christology. And it's the study of the nature and the life and the divinity and the character of the person of Jesus Christ. And Christology. Um, kind of arose in the early centuries of the church, though they didn't call it that then, but it arose in response to different beliefs that were arising within the church that were a little bit skewed from the truth. And you see, the early church fathers uh, saw that this was a problem and had to sort of bring folks back in and and redirect them and, 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 uh, and show how some leaders were in error in what they were saying about the nature and person of Jesus Christ. So this idea of false belief or skewed belief or you choose one thing, I choose another has been around from the very early days of the church's life. Let me give you an example of one. In the fourth century, there was a Christian leader, a Christian priest named Arius. He was also a theologian, and as he studied scripture, he began to say, you know, I believe that Jesus is the highest created being Yet he does not share the substance of God the Father. Um, bluntly, Jesus is not God. He's not divine. He's just really higher up, more than any other created being. Well, and uh, the way that sometimes false beliefs and what this what this would be called is a heresy means to choose otherwise, to choose other than what Scripture and the Church has taught. The way that these often arise is based on a just a poor understanding of Scripture or theology or whatever. And so it's important for us to look at Scripture and to know Scripture and what Scripture says. So let me give you an example of how something like Arianism, which is what was, it was, the teaching of Arius was referred to, that Jesus was less than God. Let me give you an example of how something like that can kind of um, arise even from looking at Scripture. So if you look at your bulletin at the Colossians reading, And you look at the very beginning of it, it says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, an Arius would look at that and say, you see, it says right there, he was born. He was the firstborn, so he was created. God brought him into being. He didn't always exist. Therefore, he's not divine. He's just a really higher up. And if that was the only verse you had, you might say, that's Seems plausible to me. Okay, I'll go with that. And so folks were following that teaching. Well, now, here's why it's important to, uh, in this case, study the Word of God and to understand it in its context and to understand what the, the overarching narrative of Scripture says about the person of Jesus Christ. So if you look down, let's move down to verse 16. Let's just walk through this for a minute. Of course, you don't have verse numbers in your reading here, but it's just a little bit below where it says he's the firstborn of creation. It goes on to say that he himself, or actually it says immediately after "For in him, and it's talking about Jesus here, all things in heaven and on earth were created. Things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him And for him, he himself, listen to this, he himself is, talking about Jesus here, before all things. It's saying he pre-exists anything, right? So what's up with this firstborn word then? Why does it say in verse 15 that he is firstborn? and And people like Arius are able to take that and say, you see, he was a created being. Well, the word firstborn in the Greek is prototokos. It's where we get our word prototype. And in many cases, it does indeed mean a firstborn, as in a firstborn child. However, in any other cases, it actually denotes superior rank or authority. Prototokos can mean the very highest ruler or being. And so reading the context about Jesus before, being before all things and pre-existing creation and in himself being the agent of creation, kind of puts the idea that Jesus was created out of the picture, doesn't it? Uh, another example uh, of, of the use of firstborn in a different sense is in Psalm 89:27. and God says of David, who is, uh, is a grown man and who's been selected to be king over Israel, "I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So there's another example of where firstborn is being used not in a literal sense of a firstborn child, but as in a mark of rank or superiority. So why is Paul saying all this stuff that he says in this reading to the church at Colossae? You see, every, all of Paul's letters, are, they're not um, just sort of timeless truths that he thought up and thought, you know, I'm going to write these down and they'll, everybody will just know them and believe them. He's always, uh, he's always addressing a specific situation. And so in Colossae, the situation is, Colossae is located in the Lycus Valley. It's a very, um, a very strong pagan presence in the culture um there's a sort of religious syncretism and pluralism which means i can kind of pick and choose between the different gods and combine some of them and make up my own religious system what's true what's good for me works for me and i'll take i'll take that and what's good for you works for you kind of similar to what today's culture believes in a lot of ways so in uh, people in colossae like everyone else in the ancient Greco-Roman world of that time, that was in part of the pagan culture, gave their allegiance to different gods based on what the benefit, personal benefit was. So if Poseidon could grant you a fair-weather voyage for sailing the seas, you went to his temple and made devotions to him. If you wanted to find a romance partner, a lover, you made a sacrifice to Aphrodite. And if you sought wisdom on a particular matter, you would go to the temple of Athena and make devotions to her, the goddess of wisdom. Pagan religious devotion was largely based on what I get out of it. It was about advancing one's own well-being. Now, the problem in the Colossian church is that someone or a group of people have come along and began to promote a sort of um, a Jesus and then some philosophy is what I call it, Um, adding on to the completed work of Jesus Christ by promoting things such as, and saying these things are necessary for Christians, a rigorous dietary laws, vision seeking, the celebration of certain festivals must be kept, worship of angels, uh, strange and cynic philosophies, just to name a few. And we know about those because they're listed in Chapter 2, and we'll do part of that next week. This is sort of a two-part sermon. So um, some, somebody uh, made a joke and said, is that how you get people to come back to church the second Sunday as a row and say, to be continued? And I said, yeah, that's pretty much, that's pretty much the tactic. Um, so in response to this teaching, Paul is responding to, to guard his flock against erroneous teaching that will lead people away from the true in uh, the truth of who Jesus Christ actually is. Because Paul does not believe that a Christian can just believe whatever they want to believe so long as they fit Jesus somewhere into the picture of their religious system. Paul does not believe that. He sees the connection between the earthly Jesus, the teacher, the rabbi, the healer, And the eternal creator God, Jesus, who is before all things and is the agent of creation and brings all things into creation, and also himself is the agent of reconciliation and reconciles all things that have been divided because of sin and wickedness, he's also the agent of reconciliation that brings everything back to God through his sacrifice on the cross, full stop. So you can see why Paul was worried and is giving us this really, I mean, if you read through this, this is like poetic and almost systematic, this, this, um, this, this um, paragraph in Colossians of who Jesus is. He just continues to pour out. He's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and he continues to just elaborate on the nature and the character of Jesus. And clearly, Paul believes that Jesus is the divine and eternal God. You see, Paul saw, and you and I must see, that what we believe will determine how we live. And more particularly, what we believe about Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, will determine what kind of Christian disciples we will be. That's why the early church fathers worked so hard, just like Paul is here in the first century. That's why the church fathers of the fourth century worked so hard, to eliminate the teaching of Arius, and to come together under the power of the Holy Spirit and read scripture and discern what God was saying about who his son was. And uh, the result, one of the results of that, just so happens to be something we're going to say together in a few minutes, it's called the Nicene Creed. And it begins, we believe in one God, and goes on to elaborate what we believe about the one creator God and his only Son, who is begotten, not made, and there's a reason it says, of one being with the Father. You see, Arius was saying he's not of one being with the Father. The Father created him, but he doesn't share in his nature, character. And that's why the Creed says he's of one being with the Father. So the, the, the creed that we still say today is a product of 325 A.D., that is when it was composed as a response to what was called the Arian Controversy over what this Arius fellow was teaching. This creed, if you look at it, it it's, so, it's so easy to become accustomed to just saying it every week as a sort of rote practice. We all fall into that, and we're not really thinking about it as we say it. But look at it prayerfully as we read it today. And look what it states. You are making a countercultural affirmation about what you believe when you say, I believe in one God, the only God, his only son. It is powerful stuff. It is powerful stuff. So here's the thing we need creeds, we need doctrine, we need people to systematically spell out, like Paul does in Colossians, who Jesus is for us. We need to know the truth about God as he is revealed because these things embody the truth of the revelation of God in a way that we can understand it as linguistic creatures who communicate with language. So language and what we say about God is of utter importance. Friends, we live in a culture that has eroded the foundations of truth by, with the belief that we just make up our own truth. We cut out our own path. We shape our own destiny. We decide what's true based on what benefits us. And if you look at our culture, you see that. Young people especially, you are going to face this Uh, in college, in high school, you are going to come face-to-face with a philosophy that says there's no such thing as truth. You make up the truth. You will face that at some point. Human beings have an innate desire to know the truth about reality. It's what drives human exploration. It's what drives the sciences, It's what drives the art because we as human beings hunger for truth and we hunger to know it and to express it. Here's the important thing. In Christianity, this solid foundation is not a principle. It's not a way of self-improvement. It's not some ideal that concerns personal happiness it's not a particular philosophical idea. In Christianity, the solid foundation of capital T truth is a person. It's a person. He is the image of the invisible God. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. In Him All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things. You see, as Christian disciples, we don't get to make up the truth. We don't decide what's true. We receive the truth in a disposition of humility. And submission to the God, the eternal God who reveals his truth to us as a person so that we can know truth and know him and walk arm in arm with him each day of our lives. That's the joy of our faith is we don't have to pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps and try to make ourselves a way of self-improvement to earn God's favor because God's done the work and he's made it known to us in a person. Because we're relational creatures. Do you remember that pivotal scene in the Gospels where Jesus is standing before the Roman prefect uh, Pontius Pilate and he's on trial and uh, Jesus says to, to Pontius Pilate, all who are on the side of truth, all who are on the side of truth, listen to me. And Pontius Pilate responds in a scoff. What is truth? You see, we live in a Pontius Pilate culture that stands face to face with truth and chooses to crucify it. But each of us, each day, we also stand face to face with the truth. And we have to make a decision about how we respond to that truth. Will we be like Martha, hustling around and trying to improve things and are getting lost in the details of the day? Or will we be like Mary, who has chosen the best thing and sit at the feet of Jesus, receive what He has for us, receive His truth, receive the truth that He Himself is, and be transformed by it, which one will we be? Let us pray. Eternal Father, Eternal Son, grant us the ability to be receptacles of your truth so that we might know that we do not make up our own truth and that we do not have to be even burdened with that Because you are the foundation of all truth and thus of our hope and our faith and our lives. Help us to awake each day and choose the best part of sitting at your feet and knowing you personally. We pray this in Jesus' name.